This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Service at Ohio University. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything that might have an impact on your career. I'm your host, Bev Jones. I'm a career coach, and my most recent book is Find Your Happy at Work. If you're a regular listener here at Jazzed About Work, you know that finding happiness on the job is a major theme for us. And one way we explore the path to a rewarding and enjoyable career is to ask our guests to tell us their career stories. Our guest today is Karen Eber, and she's an expert on storytelling. She knows the science about why it's such an effective way of communicating and connecting with other people. Karen's interesting new book explains why stories are so powerful and how you can learn to tell stories that are engaging and memorable. Her very readable book is called The Perfect Story, How to Tell Stories That Inform, Influence, and Inspire. Karen will share tips from that book, specific suggestions about how you can become a better communicator. She'll explain what science has taught us about the power of stories, and of course, she'll tell us about how storytelling has fueled her interesting career as a global leadership consultant. Karen, I am so excited that you're here because I learned so much from your book, and I think other people um, will not only learn it from your book, but they'll enjoy it too, just like I did. And I want to talk a lot about the book today, but of course, I have to start by asking you to tell us a little bit about your story. How did you get so interested in storytelling, and how did you make it kind of a keystone of your career? I was born with blue eyes that pretty quickly turned to two different colors. I have a brown eye and a green eye. And it's my favorite thing about myself. I mean, I feel like why have one colored set of eyes when you can have two different colors? But what I found is that as much as I loved it and as much as I thought it made me feel special, so many people did not know what to make of it. I could tell the exact moment in a conversation when someone would notice because their eyes would dart back and forth and in between mine, (laughs) almost like their brain was trying to decide like, which color do we look at? And their words would slow and it would come to a halt and I would brace myself because the same set of questions always followed, which started with, did you know you have two different colored eyes? (laughs) To which I would usually uh, sarcastically respond, no, really? And then they would start this this script almost of, I know a dog with two different colored eyes, to which I always felt like, thank you. You know, how do you respond to that? Wow, it's hard to respond to. It is. And then it would turn to David Bowie had two different color eyes, which he didn't. He had an enlarged pupil from an accident. And 
there would be these series of questions like, what colored eyes do your, do your parents have? Uh, do you see different colors out of each eye? Or do your eyes give you special powers? And I just never understood why these interactions went so weird. And this thing that I loved became this burden of attention because they would then call other people over. I would have 10 faces in front of me cramming to see my eyes, You know, people barking at me, look here, let me see. And then the question would come, which was, how did that happen? And I just felt this dread of this thing I loved suddenly made me weird and different and interrupting of all interactions. And I decided to tell a story one day where I said that I was born with brown eyes. I was in my room coloring about the time I was four years old. I was hungry. Dinner wasn't going to be for a few more hours. I reached into that box we all have, the one that you put the the broken crayons and the peeled crayons and the perfect crayons. I reached in and grabbed a green crayon and I sniffed it and it, it didn't really smell like anything, but I took a bite and I was surprised how much I liked the taste and the texture, so I ate it. And I liked it, so I ate another green crayon and another until all the green crayons in the box were gone. The next day I woke up and my left eye was green. And then I would be quiet. Oh, that's a great story. Yeah. Yes. And people wouldn't know how to react. I could see their brains trying to process, is she for real? Is this a true story? Like logic says this isn't true, but she sure delivered that with a straight face. And I would let them off the hook and I would tell them that, no, I did not eat crayons. And that is not why my eyes are different colors. But it created this really interesting shift where we went from this awkward moment where I was on display to connection, where we were now laughing and interacting and having a different conversation than we probably would have otherwise. I've had people tell me 20 years later, they still remember me for my eye color because of this story. And so I feel like in that moment, I recognized stories are such a helpful way to not only create connection, but to create the shift in energy, to change a dynamic or even to create a a type of connection that may not have been there. And I paid attention to that throughout my career as a head of culture in General Electric and a business and a, a chief learning officer and head of leadership development in Deloitte, where I was continu- continually trying to persuade people that had the budgets for investment in development or technology. I was trying to persuade them to say yes. And one person could say yes, and like 99 people could say no. And I found that using a story was a great way for me to help the people that were going to say no to slow that no, to get people on my side and have even more people persuade. So it's always been a big piece of the work that I do to help inform, influence, inspire people to do better work and create workplaces that people can thrive in. Well, that is a great story. And long after you told the green crayon story, there was there developed i think a wealth of information about how our brains uh, deal with story the the neuroscience of um, storytelling suddenly it's accessible and you explained it so clearly in your book i i loved a phrase you used that storytelling is a musical conductor of neurochemicals. So so tell us what that means. What is it that happens in our brain when we listen to a story? And why is it so much uh, more effective than just giving all the data about something? 
When we're listening to someone share data, whether that's in a meeting or a lecture or any type of update, there's a really small part of our brain that's activated on the side of our head. It's called Wernicke's area. It's about the size of a walnut. And what happens is we hear or read words and our brain looks at those words, compares it to an internal lexicon, our internal dictionary to say, do we know what these mean? And if yes, it's comprehension. And if no, we either say, well, let me find out what it means or we just move on. And so this is happening real time, subconsciously, comprehension, and only the size of a walnut is activated. We're not interacting with the information in any way. And often within an hour, we forget half of what's said. And we've all experienced this. But when you start listening to a story, you then start engaging so much more surface area you go from talking at people to having them visualizing themselves in the story. So if I am describing walking on the beach and I'm smelling the salty air and I'm hearing the waves crash on shore, almost like a cymbal crash, and I feel the wind maybe blowing my hair off my face and can almost taste that salt water on my lips, your brain is now starting to light up as though you were there on the beach with me. And so from a real estate perspective, we go from something the size of a walnut to engaging really the surface area of the brain, and it becomes so much more dynamic. And so I give a metaphor of um, if you are listening to, um, let's say you're in a coffee shop and there's all of those sounds, glasses clinking and forks, forks hitting plates and, and maybe some background noise, you pretty quickly stop processing it because your brain registers the sounds and then lets it go. You're not committing it or interacting with it. You're not committing it to memory or interacting with it. But if you listen to music, you tap your foot you become a part of the music, you feel your emotions swell and you are having an experience. And something similar happens when we are listening to information or a story. Information is the same thing as the white noise in a coffee shop. We process it and let it go almost immediately. But the story is like we're listening to a piece of music that we're really engaged in and really enthralled in. That is so powerful. I I think we've all kind of known or have been taught that stories are the way to get a point across, but uh, understanding why makes it so much more compelling. But something else you taught me in this book is that it's not enough to tell a really nice story if your goal is to make a point. And you um, uh, had a little anecdote about my one of my favorite commercials of all time, which is the Budweiser puppy love one where this adorable little lab puppy, I think, um, runs away to visit a Clydesdale horse and they kind of fall into friendship. Um, it's a it's a wonderful one. It's one of the few commercials that I've ever watched repeatedly <laughs> in my life because it's so cool. But you told us that uh, research says it didn't sell much beer. It wasn't a very good commercial, even though it was, for me, such a lovely story. Can you tell us about what happened with that? Yeah, the commercial is exactly that. It's a puppy that lives next door to this barn. Uh, In fact, it's a a litter of puppies that are for sale. And this one particular puppy keeps climbing under the fence, digging its way under and running into the barn next door to visit his friend. And the owner of that barn keeps having to bring the puppy back. And and the two families are always laughing about it. 
one day the puppy is adopted, is put in the back of the car, and true Budweiser commercial style, the puppy is yelping in the back window. The Clydesdales start storming after the horse and a thunder, storming after the car in a thunderous chase, put it to a halt, and are able to get the puppy back. And the puppy and the Clydesdale are, are reunited as best buds. And this was a Super Bowl commercial. It was Emmy-nominated, award-winning. And if you asked people, it was their favorite commercial of the night because it was just so memorable. It's a feel-good story. But every time we're telling a story, we do have an outcome that we want. And in the case of a Super Bowl commercial that is incredibly expensive, that outcome is sales. What happened is that there's a neuroscientist, Dr. Paul Zak, where he and his company have found a way to measure the oxytocin response. So oxytocin is a neurochemical that is released in moments of connection or interest or immersion. So when there's a story that is really captivating, you see this increase in oxytocin. And so his company has found this way through wearable devices to measure moment by moment, how is someone responding to a commercial or a movie trailer or any piece of media? They did an experiment with people where they showed them a series of commercials, they asked them their thoughts about it, and then they looked at the measurements. All people in this experiment reported they love the commercial, that it's a feel-good story, but what happened in the measurement was something different. Their brains did not engage with it because the moment we see the puppy run up to the Clydesdale, our brain says, I know what this is. These are friends. They're going to get separated. They're going to have to find their way back to each other. I know exactly what's going to happen, so I'm just going to kind of step back and relax because our brain is always spending calories, right? We have basic functions for our body that the brain has to, to keep running with calories, and then there's optional ones like where we put our attention. And what happened they found in this, this moment is that while people liked it and it was a feel-good story, there wasn't that immersion that leads to someone really interacting with it, leading to them making a decision to buy or having some type of change. And they predicted that this commercial would be a failure before Budweiser did because they recognized while people say they like it, the true measure of their brain's response is really different. And this is why it's not enough to tell a story. The way you're telling it is going to make things impact the brain differently, and that's going to change someone's experience. So in that commercial was the problem that there was no surprise. There was no tension. You weren't, you, you weren't sticking with... Uh, the story because you wanted to see what happened in the end because you already knew. And so there has to be that surprise. There wasn't enough tension. It's exactly that. It's when you see a a movie or a book or something that your brain is like, I, I know exactly what's going to happen. It's often the the trope that's in movies for romantic comedies or certain stories. Like we can predict what's going to happen. And that's what happens in this show or in this commercial as you're watching it, your brain predicts what's going to happen and it decides, okay, we already know what's going to happen here. So we're going to conserve our resources for other things. Now you're still watching, but you're not immersed in it the way you are. If there was some really unexpected things happening, if there was a lot more tension or maybe some details that we weren't prepared for. So it's a great story for like a bedtime story because you're not getting the the person watching it so tense and uncomfortable that they're not going to be able to rest. But that also means that there's not enough there for the brain to decide this is worth me committing more calories to. 
So it has to be a great story and not just any old story. And something else that you um, describe so well is that a story is better if there are details, if they're kind of, um, if it um, opens your senses, if you smell and hear and, you know, all of those kind of things. So I am going to ask you to coach me a little bit. I started thinking, all right, I, I have felt for a while that my storytelling, whether, you know, I'm writing a story uh, in a book or I'm giving a speech or whatever, is I don't have enough detail. In fact, my journalism journalist husband sometimes says when he's looking at something I've written, you got to give more detail because I don't feel it. And I realized that I have two excuses for why I haven't put in more detail. Probably laziness is one of them, but it's I'm not counting that here. I have two valid excuses. They felt valid. One is that I'm often telling stories to make a point in the context of um, a business situation or I'm working with a client. And I feel like I don't want to waste their time kind of going down the rabbit hole of this story that I enjoy. And so I tend to make it much more uh, flat. Um, And the other reason why I don't do it is lots of times I tell stories based on one of my clients. And of course, I have to keep everything totally confidential. And so I don't want to give any details, but I've come up with a workaround that I want you to, and I want you to guide me in whether this works. I've found that made up details are never, never work for me. They just seem flat. I don't believe in them and nobody else does. But if I can imagine another person, it can just be a friend of mine, an acquaintance or some other person who, and it fits with the actual client I'm writing about. I've got this um, not exactly true story in terms of the details, but the details are true somewhere. And that seems to work. So, So my question to you is first, tell me why. I can provide much more context, just like you're doing in your conversation with me right here. Why I can do that in a business context, and I won't seem like I'm kind of stepping out of the bounds of what I should be doing. That's the first question. And then then I'm going to ask you about the confidentiality thing and how you make it real. So... Yeah, let's start with the confidentiality because I think that's an easier response. And I think that's something many people experience. I know I work with CEOs of Fortune 500 companies and their teams and face the same thing. So you always want to honor confidentiality. Um, First rule, never tell a story about someone else without their approval and change the things that need to be changed for anonymity. I change names, I change physical descriptions if they're needed, industries, all of that. What you don't want to change, though, because you don't want to be making up stories, what you don't want to change are the events in the stories. So changing some of the the details about who it is is totally fine, you know, where you are, um, maybe like you're doing replacing with someone else in a similar circumstance, that's fine. When you start changing the events of the story in a way that the listener feels like you're withholding information or you are intentionally manipulating information, that is when you lose your audience and you lose the trust. So don't make up stories. Certainly swap for confidentiality and anonymity where it's not changing plot points. Okay, that's helpful. And I, I guess I've kind of been doing that. Now, 
let's get to um, the details. When you're telling the stories, um, you use um, descriptions, like when you're talking about if you were on the beach and you felt the wind and so forth. That's okay now in, in, in a business setting, isn't it? I mean, we if it works, that's acceptable. It does. We do have this bias that makes us think, I can't talk about that because I I need to be serious. I need to present data. I can't be telling this colorful story. And that's not true. As we look at decision-making, we find research that says that we make decisions at an emotional level, often subconsciously based on our experiences. And the way we interact with emotions is through our senses and through details. It's almost like as you are taking in information through your senses, they get stamped with emotions. Just like if you take a photo on your camera phone and you swipe up, you're going to see that on that photo is stamped with the date, the location, the f-stop, the aperture, the, the file size, like everything is stamped there without you doing anything. Something similar happens as we are having experiences. And the more intense the experience, the more emotions that are stamped on it and stored in our long-term memory. So what happens when we're listening to information and we're going to make a decision or we're going to take action, our brain is scanning all of those experiences, our what I call the library of files, to see what have we done in the past and how can that inform what's happening. And most of this is subconsciously before we're even aware of it. So what details are doing is they are helping help your brain. Um, details are helping your brain connect to what someone understands and and make things be familiar. When I told the crayon story, I intentionally described that box of crayons we all have. For me, it was a cigar box. Uh, for other people, it maybe it was a shoe box. But we all, at some point in our lives, seem to have this box where all of the crayons are in, and the perfect ones, and the peeled ones. And while that may not be critical to the plot, what it does is it has you picture your box of crayons. And now you are reaching into the box looking for a green crayon and thinking of it. And what I'm doing is getting your brain more engaged in it. When you're adding details, you want to have them make sure they are rounding out or advancing the plot. And sometimes that's giving more context about the characters. Sometimes it's sharing details of why the story is messy or complicated, or it's adding in some specificity. You want to add in details that are going to engage senses and emotions so that the person listening or reading feels themselves in the story. And you want to have the specificity because it's that specificity that helps someone picture things and be a part of it without having to consciously say, what would that feel like? It just has the brain be there as a willing participant, giving meaning and context. The best details. Yeah. I can I can see the yellow and blue cigar box that mm-hmm. our family used for crayons for decades. It's right? it, it really makes it very vivid just as soon as you said cigar box because that's my only <laughs> uh, time I've ever seen a cigar box. Maybe and the pride you felt for those crayons that were perfect and not peeled like the, yes. there's so much excitement for those. <laughs> That's exactly right. Well, I think my um, retrieval system may not be strong enough because I know that there are times where I'm dealing with something a little difficult and I'm trying to explain it, and I just don't have a great story. So one of the things you suggested is that we can 
I don't know, kind of build a habit of collecting stories and don't worry how you're going to use them. You just start collecting them. Tell me a little more about that. I, I don't quite get how do we collect stories so that they're on the shelf when we need them. The best time to come up with ideas for stories is when you never need a story because our brain is more relaxed in those moments. So if I knew that in five minutes you were going to ask me a story, I would have this release of cortisol in my body saying, you better focus, something isn't right. And all of a sudden resources become constrained and it's going to be that much harder for me to think creatively. Same is true for anyone. Whenever we're backed up against a deadline or trying to tell something in the moment, it can feel hard. And so when you do create this habit of making a list before you ever need a story, it gives you something to scan. And the act of scanning it helps you choose the idea that might be relevant or it often prompts a whole new idea that could be meaningful. So the way you do this is have a dedicated place where you can keep your ideas, whether that's a notebook or an app or a spreadsheet, like whatever works for you. You want a place where you can capture these so that you are spending time thinking of ideas and not trying to remember them later. I get my best ideas on walks. I used to never write them down thinking, I'll remember them later. And guess what? Wouldn't remember. So have a place. And then you want to go and start mining your own experiences Our professional experiences are endless with potential story ideas and moments. You know, you can start with the typical questions you might be asked in an interview about your best team, your worst team, a failure. Um, But it's often small nuances of moments like uh, a lesson you unexpectedly learned. Go into your personal life, vacations, first car, um, things that are maybe something that you should have gotten rid of, but you didn't. Uh, working through different prompts and asking yourself different questions starts to yield ideas because it's the specificity that's going to help you think of something. You can think of when you move through the world and you have a favorite podcast or a museum that you love, or, or maybe you read an article that was really fascinating. Anything that captures your interest, you want to take note of. You're not writing a full story. You're writing enough so that when you scan it, you know what it is and you can come back to it and see, can I use this to help me build an idea that's meaningful? So having a place, starting to build this list, and then having a habit where once a week, once a month, you are just regularly putting down the things that you notice makes it so much easier when you're going to tell a story because you realize how many endless stories you have to tell. I think that journaling is an almost magical way to to build self-awareness and manage yourself on the job or any other place in life. And I've seen journaling be helpful for clients in all kinds of situations. So it feels like a natural way to start. If people are do some kind of journaling regularly, you already have that habit to start uh, consciously um writing the stories that, uh, or the potential stories or the ideas for a story in the future and then flag them somehow so that you can go back and find them. That seems like a pretty good way to start, doesn't it? I do. I do think so. Where you are taking the time to really think and get in your, your thoughts of what ideas are coming up. The key to story prompts really is specificity. So if you don't mind, I'd love to ask you two questions to demonstrate what I mean. One is intentionally vague, which is the first one. Would you tell us about your childhood? How would you describe your childhood? 
My parents were New Zealanders uh, and um, new to the United States when I was born. And for my father's job, we moved around a lot. So I was not anchored in any one place. And I think that shaped me as a child. Oh, absolutely. How neat. Okay. So second question, what sound or smell reminds you of home? Hmm. Well, home now for me is rural Virginia. And the smell of mown hay or grass, uh, the smell of the, the trees after a rain, the natural smells make me feel like I'm at a farmhouse. Yeah, I can smell that hay as soon as you said it. So the first question is intentionally vague, and your answer was so rich, but it's also broad, where you talk about your parents coming to the country and moving around a lot. And what happens with that question is our brain doesn't quite know which file to access. And, you know, you're, you're asking me a really broad question. Childhood spans like 20 years. Where, where do you want me to focus? What do you mean describe my childhood? Most people share a location that they lived or locations like you did, maybe the type of housing, and, and that's about it. When you get to sound or smell, now you mentioned three or four different things that we could dig into, and there are probably endless stories of you being outside in nature and different experiences that you've had. So the more specific you can be in the prompts you ask yourself, the more detailed story ideas come up, the the um larger amount of story ideas come up and you'll find yourself saying, I never would have thought of that. So when you feel like you don't have an idea, you really just have to dig into a deeper level or a more detailed question to see what comes up because it's the specificity that helps the brain know which file to access and what to pull forward. And back to journaling, there are all kinds of lists online on questions to answer in your journal, things like that. So you can get questions from um, the internet for writing that might trigger your own responses in your journal, and that might bring up some other things. But let me um, ask some more questions about how you actually tell a story. Uh, I um, love the way, Karen, you use words to make things rich and complex, uh, but I, I can't see you. We, we just have audio here. And I, I think... Um, Body language is really important when two people are together. Uh, you can you can connect in ways. You could um, often people mirror each other's uh, movement and things like that. Is that an important part of storytelling if you're actually in person somewhere? I think whether you are in person or like we are virtually, the body language is key. While you can't see me, I am gesturing and doing things to make my stories more vivid. So I, I held a fake cigar box with crayons in it because <laughs> it's going to make me tell a more animated story. If we were in person, it would be reinforcing to you visually the words that I'm saying. The opening part of the TED Talk I gave, I it's about a woman who dropped a phone down an elevator shaft. You see me push a button in an elevator. You see my hand gesturing like it's falling to the ground. And I talk about the inspection certificate in the elevator. And so my hand, my left hand goes up to the side where that would be in an elevator. And these are all intentional things to help you visualize and reinforce what's being said. If you think about 
uh, graphic illustrators that can real time draw these images to capture what's being discussed in a meeting or a keynote. It is fascinating to watch them. It's like they are magically hearing what's said, picturing the image and drawing it. But the reason they are able to do this so well isn't that they are thinking real time, what's a great draw an image or icon to, to represent this. It's because they have a vocabulary. They know that if maybe the word physical is used, they might draw a barbell or idea is going to be a light bulb or thinking is going to be a brain. So they are listening and they are just translating to the vocabulary that they have. Something is true when we're telling stories. You want to be thoughtful of how do you bring people in with your vocabulary of gestures and every word and every sentence doesn't need it. But thoughtfully placing them is not only going to draw the audience into the story. If you are a nervous speaker, it is going to help move some of that energy around and give you intentional movement so you're not trying to figure out what to do with your hands. Well, Karen, that makes me feel better because when I'm doing a podcast recording and I get excited about something like I'm excited about your book, I use hand gestures. And if I get really exciting, I move back and forth and my chair squeaks and then we have to take out that, that sound. Um, I... Um, do find that if I let myself go, I can speak more fluidly than if I'm, you know, trying to be very still so I don't make any noises or interrupt anybody. So I feel better since you've told me that you do that too. I I, um, I want to ask about one specific area where storytelling, I think, might be helpful, but I guess you probably have to be careful. This is a podcast about... Uh, everything related to careers. And of course, for many people, that includes job interviews, where you're trying to leave an impression of yourself when you leave the room, if you're doing this uh, in person or, you know, Zoom, same thing. So do you have any suggestions for listeners out there who might have uh, questions about how to be effective telling stories during a job interview? Recognize that if you are not telling the story, you are leaving it up to the person you're interviewing with to form their own understanding of you. And what a story does is it's this package for helping them understand you, you at your best, and how they would best leverage your expertise. It is such an important skill because when you don't tell that story, you're leaving so much up to interpretation. But when you do, you are helping shape that understanding. There's a few different things that help this be really uh, meaningful. First is before you even start working on those tell me about a time questions, think about three words or phrases that you feel really describe you at your best. And I don't mean like conscientious or hardworking or words that everyone knows because they're too general and everyone would be using them to describe themselves. You want to be really specific. So I might describe myself as like a tour guide of storytelling where I'm going to take you to new destinations and you're going to learn things along the way. So if I have a phrase like that, that I start working into an interview response, that person I'm interviewing with is going to remember that and it's going to help me stand out. So first is pick these three words or phrases because you're going to be able to weave them into the responses that you give. The second is to be really thoughtful about in-groups and out-groups. 
So our brain is naturally sorting people we encounter into in-groups and out-groups. In-groups are those that we share values or beliefs, or maybe we even aspire to be a part of. And out-groups are where we notice differences. So in general storytelling, you know, the in-group is the, I'll have what she's having. Um, In sales, this is the, I I don't just want this product. I want what the product will give me, or it's a, a place where I feel belonging the outgroup is something that charities will often use that is um, you hear when there's a story about someone suffering from a natural disaster who has lost their home, struggling to get clothing, food, electricity, while you're hearing the story sitting in electricity with food, like you start to recognize how different your circumstances are. So in a job interview, you want to be really thoughtful of where am I a member of an in-group and I am an ad to the to the culture, to the team, to the organization, where they would look at me and see enough similarities that they would feel like, okay, this doesn't feel like a stretch. We could see this person here and that feels wonderful. But also, where are you a member of an out-group bringing different experiences and things that they don't have that are going to complement and not compete And so you take these three words or phrases and you take this intentionality around where you are describing the the in-group similarities and the out-group differences, and you can sit down with each of those tell me about a time question and start to put together something that is going to help that interviewer really understand what they are getting in you, what wonderful things you're adding to the team and the the differences that are going to complement what they're doing. And so you immediately are getting to a different understanding of them and helping them remember you in a more dynamic way. That is really helpful. And being remembered is one of your key goals if, if you're doing some kind of interview. I am sorry to say, Karen, that we are running out of time. Um, this has been so helpful. And if people want to hear more from you, I recommend your TED Talk. And I did listen to it, but I don't remember how I found it. I Maybe I just put in your name and TED.com. Is that how the best way to find your TED Talk? Yep, it is. Absolutely. It'll come up right away. And the book, I'm sure, is available on Amazon and every other place that has books. But let me repeat the uh, total, the title, The Perfect Story, How to Tell Stories that Inform, Influence, and Inspire. And I think this could be helpful to lots of people who just want to maybe take the next step at being effective in their, their speaking, in their participation in meetings, in writing, whatever. So thanks very much for sharing all your good tips with us. And I, I look forward to hearing other stories from you somehow in the future. Thank you for having me. Today, we've been speaking with leadership consultant Karen Eber about the power of storytelling. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Beverly Jones, author of Find Your Happy at Work. And our sponsor is the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Service at Ohio University. Today's tip is that when you want an audience to really get a key point, find a way to illustrate it with a story.
for listening to Jazzed About Work. And if you like the show, please tell your friends about us. Thank you.